Hello and welcome to How to Grow a Pod, the podcast about podcasting from the book How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast by me, Jilly Smith. This is where you'll find the almost unedited interviews by the pioneers of podcasting, the hobbyists and the pros who feature in the book. This week, Radio 4 and BBC Sounds producer Georgia Catt tells us about her award-winning series with presenter Jamie Bartlett, The Missing Crypto Queen, and the rise and rise of the long-form podcast, the audio version of the Netflix binge. I began by congratulating her on finding such a rich subject in the extraordinary story of multi-billion dollar scam artist Dr. Ruja Ignatova. Yeah, I thought you were going to say on finding uh, finding Dr. Ruja then, which unfortunately <laughs> we haven't yet. But um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. The story, yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think. I mean, it's been about two years now since I first came across this story and a year since Jamie and I started working on this and it took over our lives, I think is fair to say. So, I mean, it's amazing to see just the reach that it has had, you know? I mean, we're getting emails from people all over the world who've heard it. So yeah, really pleased. Last I read was 3.5 million downloads. That was in the first four months. How many now? They're really funny about releasing the figures. I know it's 4.7, 4.8. That was when I last asked. Um, But yeah, so going up. So Phenomenal. um, Phenomenal. (laughs) Let's talk about how that actually happened. It's it's, It's a new type of storytelling, isn't it? Now, I've interviewed Ira Glass and, you know, we talked about how he kind of set the standard for this new form of storytelling. The Untold, which you were also a producer on, I said to him that I thought was a very similar clearly kind of inspired by the Chicago school of storytelling wait just tell me about the untold first of all were you aware of Ira Glass when you were making the untold oh yeah I mean I think um I (laughs) of course I mean I think that he and this American life have done so much you know for narrative storytelling and just for increasing the interest in it as well um, and I think one of the big things that I first that first me, drew me to those stories and kind of kept me listening was was him and how engaged he was in them and so it wasn't this traditional top-down host presenting you know you know it was he was absolutely engaged with the story himself and so yeah that was something we wanted to bring to the untold and um, yeah, just finding these incredible stories in the most unlikely of places sometimes, right? And, you know, and it, it is kind of, it, there is something in it of seeing it almost in a more cinematic way, I suppose, in how you structure it. Um, it's not a kind of case of clip link, clip link, you know, and it is it's how you, how you leave the audience wanting more, I think. So that, yeah, it was a lovely series to work on. Absolutely. And the podcast, of course, is the perfect Uh, platform for that because you can binge it's the Netflix phenomenon isn't it but in your ears so you can really play with that we'll talk about that in a little bit but first of all tell me about that moment when you came across the story of Ruja Ignatova what was the ka-ching moment huh I mean I'm so I mean I came across this story in I, you know, sometimes the best things, you're not looking for them, right? You're just, it is through uh, conversations that just go in a certain way. And this was a friend of a friend 
And uh, yet we were out in the pub of all places and he got out his phone and he started telling us about this new investment that he'd made. And on his phone, there was a sort of dial and a screen and it showed that his investment, I think it was something like 7,000 euros into this new cryptocurrency had already reached 38,000. And in the next six months, it was going to be triple that and in the next year and it was going to go up and up and up. And this was going to be the new Bitcoin. It was going to be bigger than Bitcoin. It was going to be better than Bitcoin because it was democratizing cryptocurrency. And I mean, I, I remember sitting there and I don't know a huge, well, I, don't, I know a lot more now, but I didn't know a huge amount about cryptocurrency. But what I did know is that my friends who have invested in things like Bitcoin can take their money out if they want. They can buy things with that Bitcoin. They can trade it. Whereas the money on this person's account was just, stuck there on the screen um, and my boyfriend and I we spent about it must have been three or four months just obsessing over this going down the rabbit hole because it had all these mad Facebook pages these mad websites incredible videos of and um, it's actually how we started the first episode of Rouge, the founder walking onto these stages in huge arenas and pyrotechnics, glitter, you know, loud music. And just, you know, she was like a messiah. She was like promising this new financial revolution. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And it was, I, I think the thing was for a long time, I didn't believe that it was as big as they were saying. You know, they claimed, OneCoin claimed to have 3.5 million members. And I just didn't think it was that big because I kept thinking, well, if it was, then surely someone else would have reported on this. Um, and it was only, I think, once I started engaging with people in these groups and looking at these Facebook videos that you realise it is this world that exists that people don't know about. And I think it had sort of fallen down the cracks, really, between mainstream media, who just found it a bit niche and weird, and that's cryptocurrency, and the cryptocurrency reporters sort of thinking it's not a cryptocurrency, so we're not going to report on it. And Yes, I mean, when I realised it was real, I, I mean, I've wanted to do something on cryptocurrency for a while. And I think because it's a real, it's quite a divisive world, you know, you're either in it or you're not. And if you're in it, you are quite often absolutely evangelical about this. And so I've been trying to find a way to get into this. And this just seemed a perfect story for that. And then, of course, she disappeared. And I mean, what, what better character, I think, can you want to, <laughs> to well, focus exactly. on, you know? It's, I mean, it's true crime, isn't it? Were you thinking at that moment of the untold? Were you, where were you thinking of placing it? If indeed you were thinking about it as a story to be told. Yeah, I mean, so I, for the untold, I mean, I've worked on a number of single documentaries for the untold, but I also did a series for them um, about four years ago. And that was a five part series, uh, a story of a woman whose partner and father of their newborn child had disappeared one day and he I suffered from bipolar and uh, do you remember oh, yeah. and uh yeah and was it was it that he'd um he was unwell or had he just walked out so I mean I do think that the untold lent that structure of doing these narrative series um I just I didn't really mind where it went as long as it had space you know to get in depth because the other amazing thing about this story I think was that it's not just a missing woman it's this world that taps into so many things going on now whether it's distrust in the mainstream media and the banking systems whether it's fake news how easy it is to construct credibility online hype fear of missing out all of these things are wrapped up in that so I knew I wanted to have a decent space to kind of investigate it properly um, and BBC Sounds was quite new at that stage and I remember we had a meeting with the commissioning editor and 
um, yeah, I suggested it and he ran with it, you know, I mean, yeah. And had you got Jamie Bartlett on board at this time? No, no, I'd had a conversation with, so not, not in the initial stages, so wanted to get it commissioned, wanted to pitch it, and I remember they said, who, who would you think to present it? And, I mean, Jamie, I mean, I've read a lot of his books, I've heard him uh, on a number of podcasts, presenting a number of uh, documentaries, and he's just an amazing storyteller. And he I is. think he's got that mix of wit and warmth while also like having such an amazing grasp on it. So, I mean, he was my first, yeah, and absolutely in the commissioning editor. So I said yes. And he's also a technology guy as he well. He gets it. He completely gets it. And he gets the technology, but he also gets the kind of what it does psychologically, what it does to society. And so I think, yeah, I mean, he, and I remember we had a, we went for a coffee uh, just around the corner from where I live and sat there telling, talking him through the story. And I think both of us were, just couldn't wait to get on it. So now the thing about the structure of this story is it's it's what's now become a, a sort of a well-known form of narrative non-fiction where you go off on these tangents, you go down a rabbit hole, you come back up again, you breathe, you carry on with the sort of the, the narrative spine. But it's OK to dive off because everybody's a little bit more relaxed because it's a podcast. You can binge on it. You like I did. I went on a eight hour round oh. trip car trip <laughs> to listen to it and you know we came back had 20 minutes left we said we have to go on another car trip just to listen to this together um it feels like you can really stretch out it's okay you don't have to kind of you know it's not going to stop at a certain time you don't have to tune in again tomorrow you don't have to give up what you're doing at lunchtime tomorrow to catch the next episode relax how much did that mean to you in terms of your ability to tell a story in a different way Huh, yeah. Well, firstly, thank you. I'm glad uh, it grabbed you so much on the car journey. I mean, um, we, I think there was one big change that happened. So when we were getting this commissioned, before it was commissioned, they wanted a really in-depth breakdown of what the episodes could sound like. Um, and I think that was really important and was really good because you need to know that it's going, if you're going to commit to eight episodes you need to know that there's going to be enough in there. And I remember writing this and just thinking, there's more, you know, there's no problem because it does open up these worlds. And when we were initially structuring it, uh, I wanted the chase to be central. I wanted the hunt for Rouge to be central. But I also, as you say, wanted to explore these worlds that it was a part of. So when structuring it, it was, you know, there'd be an episode we went to Miss One Life. You know, we knew that Miss One, when we knew Miss One Life was happening, this mad beauty contest uh, in, in, in uh, Romania. In Romania. And yeah, <laughs> sponsored by OneCoin. They said sponsored by a number of other incredibly massive brands as well, which wasn't the case. But, you know, and it was a huge event. But off the back of that, that was a great way to look at how they construct this kind of like sense of legitimacy and sense of credibility online because this was streamed all over the world and so that enabled us to get into that then there were things you know Igor Alberts this multi-level marketer in Amsterdam who was making he says he's made a hundred million dollars over his career in multi-level marketing uh, network marketing as it's sometimes called and again that was this world that it just opens up um, so I think each of the episodes it and especially the best ones, I think, it wasn't just the hunt. There was also, it would hopefully tell you something more about that world. Similarly, when we were trying to break down where the money had gone, and we spoke to Oliver Bullough, who's a brilliant financial journalist, and about money laundering and shell companies. So it was really important that we could go off on these tangents. And I think 
yeah, I think podcasts totally allow you to do that. And I think, I think they allow you to do that so long as they trust in the hosts, in the journalists, that this isn't manipulative. You know, there is a purpose to it. And I think, you know, I think, and as long as it doesn't sound like filler, and I really hope that wasn't the case with us, because I think that all of it, you know, we're just <laughs> trying to work out what we'd have to leave out because we had so much stuff by the end. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the reasons that the tangents really worked was because it humanised a, a technology story. I mean, it wasn't, in many ways, it was a technology story because it was new and interesting. People had not really heard about it before. But it was a story, it was a true crime story. It was many things, but those tangents, the hilarious beauty pageant, I mean, that was common genius wasn't it it was comic it was quite um I remember Jamie looking at me in there and he said out of and you know he's done some pretty weird stuff you know in his in his journalism you know he's been you know he's hung out with all sorts of fringe groups he wrote a book called radicals which looked at these kind of political fringe groups and he said this is possibly the most uncomfortable I've ever felt and it was very funny very odd very tasteless but we weren't, and I still don't think are, although we're getting closer, sure of exactly who these people were, you know? So it was, it was a, there was a, and they really didn't like us being there. They did not like the BBC. They didn't like the mainstream media. So it was, it was very strange. But, and I think the one thing that changed from the original structure was just how much more reactive it became. I mean, I don't think when we started researching this, so it was commissioned in December. We both started our first recordings in March or April. And I think when it was commissioned, certainly my thought was like, oh, by then the company will have collapsed. You know, there's too much scrutiny on it now. It won't still be going. And I mean, it wasn't just going. I mean, it was fighting back, you know, against what we were saying. And so we really built in what was happening as we were investigating this company, which rode solely on its reputation, you know, a multi-billion dollar company riding solely on its reputation. And I think, and, you know, feeding in, feeding in some of the things we got back. So it became a lot more reactive, which was great, but it did mean we were very much working to the wire every single week. We had an idea for what would be in each episode, but there was always something unexpected that happened. Yeah. And importantly, because you did that, and I presume you couldn't possibly have known this in advance, you were becoming part of the story, which meant that we, the listener, were part of the story we felt chased and hunted and shut down in the way that you probably did and you fighting for the story to be told meant that we were with you with that oh great yeah I mean yeah and it was I think we became and we still are obsessed with this story and angry at what was happening and really wanted to get the story out and it was just me and Jamie, and I don't mean, you know, we obviously had some brilliant support from the BBC, from all the different departments, from the legal department and the editorial department. My editor was great, but we were the main, it was us working solely on it all the time. And often we didn't know what was going on. And we were really honest with that. And I think that's something I love about podcasts or this, this new form of narrative storytelling where you, you kind of wrestle and grapple with the situations you find yourself in and you're honest about it and sometimes you might make the wrong decision decision but you say that afterwards yeah again very Ira Glass yeah 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 no that that signposting where you stop and you go okay I'm not I'm not sure about this you know Jamie did it with his mum where he rang his mum up and said look can I just read this to you because I know that you won't know what one coin 
is and if I read you this you need to tell me whether it's working and he read it and she went now Jamie I don't know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> it's it's a great it's sort of that that fourth wall almost isn't it and exactly exactly and I mean people people often think I, that that call was set up and that we'd prepped the mum to say that and we really hadn't he said she'll be perfect because she always has great insight into what I'm writing about and it was <laughs> I mean the one thing I will say I mean I do think that and I absolutely love this American life and all that and I think they, what they've done is fantastic I mean I am I'm always amazed when I listen to the end credits you know and the amount of people that they have working on uh, one of these programs especially when it's one of their big series like Serial or S-Town and yeah. you know ours were I can count the people on one hand really who were involved in it so well exactly and I wanted to ask you about that I mean the money the money that you know the the Chicago's spend on on, on their storytelling is phenomenal they can do that now but hats off to them they created it they can have that one what about BBC Sounds I mean what kind of can you tell us what the budget was for that I can't say exactly I mean it was it was the economy of scale worked in our favour with this so I mean the budget itself wasn't much more than when you're making a one-off doc for each individual episode but then we were able because there were eight of those episodes it gave us both a sustained time uh, and over time more money to do more things but um no I mean the budget I mean compared to the other ones they would be it would be tiny I mean I can't go into the specifics but but I mean at the same time they were great with you know when we wanted we had some amazing music composed by this brilliant uh musician Phil Channel who did Death in Ice Valley which is another brilliant podcast but so I mean there was money for that but I mean it was you know I mean it's still it's still pretty shoestring stuff uh yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and always will be, and that's kind of the mark of the BBC. We quite like that about the BBC. It sort of keeps us on side. It's our BBC. We pay for it, after all, isn't it? <laughs> Get and, going all around the world at yeah. taxpayers' money. And, yeah. And, yeah, and I think that I think it was we were desperate to do this story justice, and so both Jamie and I were working. I, it honestly isn't an exaggeration. We were working every single weekend, every minute of the day for that six months. Um, couldn't put it down because we want it. We knew it was such yeah. a good story. You know, you want to do it justice. Yeah. Uh, but again, you you work that into the story. We hear you getting up. We hear you. You know, you turn the, the, the recording device on the second you wake up. You call each other. You're checking in. Yeah, it, it feels. I was exhausted. Absolutely exhausted for you. I think I was driving Jamie mad by the end. As, yeah, as soon as Jamie opened his mouth and said something, I'd be like, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Get the recorder yes. out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What does BBC Sounds expect from you? Uh, and how does that compare with your um, your execs on something like The Untold? Huh, um, I mean, very. I think they want really good storytelling and really good journalism. Um, you know, and I do think that I've, as I said, with The Untold missing, but um, our department, we make a lot of long series for Radio 4 as well. And... I think that it's, it's, I think, yeah, I think that I don't, when I, I always wanted to make radio documentaries, that was, this was before podcasting, and I just loved the long form, I loved the ability to get in depth, and so I do think that the lines are becoming increasingly blurred, you know, I mean, I listened to Girl Taken, uh, which was a Radio 4 series the other day, an amazing story um, about, uh, about a guy who, tried to bring a small child from the Calais jungle over to England. And that, you know, that was a Radio 4 series and it had all the hallmarks of a podcast, you know. So I do think that there's a blurred line. Um, I mean, for me, I just think you need, for some of these stories, the ability to go in depth and obviously the ability to 
have one episode that's an hour and one that's 25 minutes depending on what it's worth um i think that's that's kind of the key the key difference but in terms of how you tell a story how you structure it uh, the untold missing that was over five days and we really did have people tuning in the next day because you structure it leaving it on a cliffhanger you know you use all this so i do think and i hope that the lines will become increasingly blurred yeah, I mean, I would say that actually, I think that the podcast narrative is influencing. I can hear it uh, that that it's there's a, a breath almost about the story. It's not so jam packed. It's not so fast. It's not racing towards some kind of conclusion or to a cl- cliffhanger at the end of you know forty five minutes. It's it feels it feels looser. Yeah, and 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 as a, and as a listener, that feels more comfortable in a way. Yeah, and maybe that is the space you have. Um, I think it's always, isn't it, when you have to reversion something uh, for a smaller slot, the temptation is to always get rid of the space and the music and those breaths. And actually, I just think that's the wrong thing to do because it's so important you have that. And especially, obviously, the way people listen to podcasts is often a much more, you know, often is on headphones, it's much more intimate. And you do want to give people time to be able to really think about what they've just heard, I think. And, I mean, yeah, you know, the sound, and I do think, I mean, the unit that I work for, I mean, people are just fantastic with how they use sound, as is, as is something like This American Life. But it's how you, when you get it right and you feel like, oh, yeah, that's what the, that being in that moment felt like to me. And it could, be, it could be through amazing script. And, again, I think, you know, Ira Glass's script is fantastic. Was it like Dirty John? I thought the script of that was so important. And, or it could just be through, I remember when, when we were in Uganda for the Missing Crypto Queen and there was this incredibly, it was one of the weirdest situations I've been in, I think, as a producer, where we're sitting with this young, uh, young man called Daniel, who was 22, and he'd, um, he, along with his father, had invested all of their money, all of their money into one coin. And we were in this tiny village in the middle of nowhere, and the mother, she's a farmer... Um, and we're sitting there and we say, oh, how did it feel when, how, what did your mother think when she re- learned that this was a scam and she wasn't getting her money back? And I just remember he was playing with the zip on his, on his jacket, just opening and closing this zip. And, you know, you're tempted as a producer to be like, oh, stop. But then actually that sound, it just showed his nervousness. So it's when I you captured, it. yeah. And it was, as he yeah. was getting, so I think it's, it's how you spot and use those little sounds to really put someone in the moment. Yeah. And he hadn't told her? No, and it was, um, again, this, yeah, it was, I don't think I've ever been in, in a situation like that where she wanted to open a shop, she was getting older and it's hard work working in the fields and she couldn't because she'd invested this money in OneCoin. Um, she had gone to a OneCoin event, she couldn't understand what they were saying because they were talking uh, in English a lot of the time. And this was all in translation, so Daniel, the son, was translating our questions. So when we said, what does she think now?, and, you know, the zip was going and he said, I haven't told her. And there was this awful moment where we sort of said, well, what does she think we're here for? And he said, she probably thinks that you're here to do a story about how great OneCoin is. And that, you know, again, I mean, what do you do? You know, what do you do as a producer in that moment? You know, you can't. I mean, it would, you know, you can't get involved in somebody's family dynamic to that extent. But at the same time, you can't let her think, go on thinking something that's a lie. So, so, and again, Jamie and I had a discussion about that, but yeah. But as a storyteller, you have to leave those spaces. You have to leave those silences so that the, the listener can hear 
that and and br- breathe in the the momentousness of that that moment that occasion it has been it has gone to auction uh to be made into a television event to a, a television series how does that feel <laughs> it's amazing isn't it it's uh i mean we kept saying when we first started working on it and not just us people we were interviewing kept saying this will be a Hollywood movie, you know, this will be, and I mean, I can see why they want it, right? I mean, the characters are so audacious, it's so loud, it's so brash, but then underneath it, you've got this really gritty stories about the the people who've invested their money. Um, I mean, it's it's obviously really exciting. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I also believe that I wanted to have as wide an audience as possible because... OneCoin, even though OneCoin, it's now not the company it was, there are still people promoting it, and there are just new, similar scam coins popping up all over the place. So I think the more people get out and the more people understand this technology, the the better. But no, I mean, obviously, it's really exciting. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see see what happens. Huge, huge congratulations. It's such a great story. Let's talk about the tech. Um, so what did you record on? Almost... Well, not almost. It's, I mean, the, my trusty Zoom, which I have here now, which I'm waving about. Uh, so that's we, an H4N, is it? That's an H5, this one. I mean, we used to use these Nagras, um, these kind of big boxes where they had, a, you know, stereo mic, separate stereo mic, and they were brilliant. But what I always found is that something happens, especially on a podcast. You don't. We left it running all the time. We never knew what was about to happen. And, you know, by the time you've plugged in the microphone, got it all kind of warmed up, you've missed the moment. So, I mean, I just have, you know, this, I can hold it, hand, hold it with my hand. Um, and it's reasonably discreet as well, which is quite good when you're in a beauty pageant in Romania with people who you don't know who they are. Um, and then often we would use clip mics as well um, and radio mics. But this was, this was just, a, yeah, that's our usual go-to, the Zoom. Talking about discretion, when you're trying to be discreet, you don't, put your headphones on presumably how will you check the levels uh, so well these one of the things that I find most frustrating with this is you can't see the screen in the dark in the sunlight you want it to be hitting just below six and so you just keep an eye on it um with I mean I always put the headphones in to start get Jamie or whoever to do a test on the levels and then and then set it rolling and I mean I do think you know depend, well I mean it depends what what it is you're doing but there's going to be times when the levels are a bit off, you know? And again, I think something like S-Town, you know, there were some of these phone calls and I remember, I think it might have started with one and it was so crackly, but it didn't matter because the story's so good, you know? So I think getting the material you want, being there for that moment is far more important than the fact one of your levels might be a bit under or over modding or something, you know, just get the material. But I mean, I, you know, whenever we're going to do a long stint of recording, I always make sure Jamie's speaking at the, um, speaking at the volume he would be and, and get going with it. But yeah, as long as, I mean, the main problem is if it over mods, if it's under, it doesn't matter as much, but yeah, if it goes over six, you're in a bit of trouble. In terms of editing, did you do the editing yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All of, all of it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was... it's kind of important to, to be the editor when you're telling this story, isn't it? Because you're making those decisions as you're recording and you only you know what those decisions are when you're actually in the edit. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why I love and have always loved um, my job because, yeah, you know, 
at times it would be wonderful to have more people on the team who you could divvy some of the work up because it gets so much. But at the same time, you know, I'm, you, you're in control of it. And exactly, you know how from the research to the edit, to the final, you know, final, listening to the final mix of it, you're involved. Um, so no, I had to, myself, I mean, Jamie would sit, we'd sit there together and listen to drafts and rough cuts. I mean, he was very involved. He wasn't, you know, it's not like a traditional presenter role. He was a journalist and involved in all the aspects of it. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it was hard. It was hard. I remember when we, we got a tip off about Frankfurt um, in episode seven, quite a few leads we've been looking at were all heading, pointing to that place. And so we kind of just This is stopped. where she might be living. This is what this yeah. might be her Rouge's home where you might actually find her. Uh, yeah. A spoiler for the next episode. I don't well no, I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> but I think I mean Constantine, her brother was recently on uh testifying in New York and he confirmed that there was a house she bought there. Um so I think I think it's somewhere she has been um regularly. But yeah, we we went to Frankfurt and that was we went on the Friday and we said the episode was going out on the Monday. No, we went on Thursday to Friday, gathering the material the whole time, kind of thinking it through how you're going to cut it. And I remember sitting there on the flight back. It wasn't a long flight, starting to cut it. And then that was the weekend, turning it around. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I, I love it. I get completely, completely absorbed in an edit, you know, especially when you're working with material that's just, you know, when you've got rich on-location recordings and amazing sound, which we had um, and amazing music, then, yeah, I get completely lost in it and the hours just go. But it was, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> Why did you choose to do it that way? Why did you choose not choose to kind of do the whole series and then put it out as a complete series? I think there was some discussion at first about should we do it as a box set? And I always, always felt, because of how extensive I knew OneCoin was around the world, I always felt that we would be getting leads and interesting feedback from people and I wanted to include that in there um, and I'll be honest I don't think we'd finished as well I do th- I mean we were never going to do it as a box set but I remember when the first episode went out the idea that we knew exactly how it was going to end at that stage you know there was too much stuff coming in and when we got leaked documents about the money that had been invested into OneCoin from around the world, including in the UK, that was really late on. And so that, again, just shifts your structure. You think, well, this has got to be somewhere prominent. So, yeah, we wanted to have that live feel. And I'm really glad because a lot of our leads came from emails from people who had worked indirectly with a company connected to OneCoin or something. So, yeah, we really wanted to, to get people involved in that way. And they were useful. And and it worked, exactly. I mean, you were getting people, you were getting the bad people after you at the same time, which turned it into a bit of a sort of, you know, um, what's the word? Kind of, well, it was an adventure, wasn't it? You knew these guys were on your tail. I mean, I was worried for you going out there because they knew that you were doing this thing. Yeah. It but felt like they were going to catch up with you. I know. I mean, it's just who we're dealing with. That was the thing we just never, you know, we were just constantly saying this. Who are these people? How are they connected? Um but I mean, I do. I mean, one thing is that, you know, we spoke to a lot of people who have been trying to expose OneCoin from a lot earlier on. So whether that's Jen McAdam in Scotland, Tim Tation in America, Bjorn Bjerke, um, they have been there hammering out warnings and trying to expose them for years. And that's really 
you know, we had, at the end of the day, we've got the BBC behind us, we're there, we're journalists, we've kind of got our legal teams, we've got our editorial teams. And I think that, you know, they did get threats and that's, that's pretty scary. That's, that, you know, so hats off to them, I think. Yeah. In terms of the legals, um, obviously you've got a legal team working 24-7 and you can ring them up at any time. That's the glory of the BBC. Most podcasters wouldn't have that. And I'm thinking about people who would be trying out a story like this for that holy grail like you had where it goes to auction and it gets bought up by something that will end up on Netflix or maybe even a feature film. The legals, you are confronting a lot of people who you are accusing of bad things. In that moment, what's a simple simple way of covering your legal back? Have conversations as early as you can, I think. So when this was commissioned, um, I remember putting the first call in to uh, our legal department and I was nervous because it hadn't at this point, there had been no charges brought against it. There had been no trial investigation that declared it a scam. There were warnings in different countries, but... And, and yeah, and I put, you know, wrote up our reasons as to why we were calling it a scam. And I always remember, you know, I sort of had the initial conversation with the legal advisor who said, no, we're fine, you know, that's okay. And then I remember the script for episode two came back. And I think the script said something like, it's a scam, it's a fraud, it could be the scam of the century. And I remember he was like, oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a bit stronger than, uh, than like, but you know, but he went with it. And I think, I think, you know, once, you do want to check that out and crucial yeah and so then when we were writing the scripts we'd make sure that they were looked over properly but I mean I think the best bit of advice is just be careful it's the small details that I think you have to be so careful of um because that's you know you can be confident saying something's a scam but then if you accuse somebody of being a scammer and maybe they weren't directly involved they didn't know that's I think you have to be absolutely watertight on those details as well for your credibility because if you get something small wrong then it throws in to question the whole the whole piece so that's what we were nervous about and spent a lot of time checking our facts on yeah the success of something like this will attract uh more commissions like this I, i'm presuming it'll attract a whole new generation of wonderful storytellers coming in because there's a space for them now i mean i know you say your unit is long-form narrative which is great but you know this is something else isn't it do you get a sense from your unit, from BBC Sounds, that there's a real future for this kind of narrative nonfiction? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think so. And I think, I think that what I certainly am interested in, and I think you're seeing brilliant podcasts and brilliant series coming through, whether that's on BBC Sounds or Radio 4 or wherever, um, are these stories that combine really good original investigation and journalism with the best in storytelling you know I think it's, it's 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 hard enough doing a really good investigation you know getting your facts right getting everything watertight and then the other side and getting a result from it and then the storytelling itself is difficult because they often rub up against each other in a way so I think that that's where that's where I think you can get some really interesting things coming out when you bring the two of them together. And yeah, and I think we're seeing it a lot, you know, I mean, I've mentioned Girl Taken, but um, Hometown I was listening to recently on BBC Sounds, I think that's fantastic. And I just, yeah, I mean, I think you've always, you should never try and be like something else though. You know, I think if, if everything tries to be like something that's gone before it, then you, you just have to look out for these great stories and run with them, you know, when you, when you find them, but be yourself, be creative on it. 
Yeah, but only if there is a, a platform available to you. I mean, I'm thinking that the Guardian, the Times, the Telegraph, you know, they could do these things. I mean, gosh, the tabloids could as well. Um, the LA Times did Dirty John. Um, you'd think that there'd be a lot more. We know that people love, just can't get enough of Netflix, of BBC Sounds, of these long form podcasts. I just don't know why the newspapers are not doing them. Is that a failure of the imagination? Is it a failure of the bank balance? What What's happening there, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I mean, like you say, I mean, the New York Times, I think, has done some incredible ones. Caliphate, I was listening to Rabbit Hole. I mean, Caliphate for me was hugely informative, I think, because, um, yeah, hugely informative in what I do, because it starts with a small story that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It spirals out. Um, but... I, I don't know. I mean, although I think it's got better because when I, I mean, I've, as I say, I've always wanted to do this, always wanted to do these documentaries and, and this type of audio storytelling. And when I first joined the BBC, there was really only Radio 4 to get them onto. And now already the landscape's changed and there are so many other platforms. So I do hope, I mean, they're, they're time consuming and they're hard work and getting the right story is not easy. So... But I just hope there's more of them. They're all challenges we can meet, I'm sure. Thanks for listening. You can buy the book How to Start and Grow a Podcast by me, Julie Smith, featuring all the interviewees on this podcast at any bookshop or go to juliesmith.com and click on the bookshop tab. And next week, I'm with another award winner, the sublime sound artist and storyteller, Hannah Walker-Brown. <laughs>